begin our study this morning in chapter 14. And God willing, we'll close out chapter 14 today and, and see what Paul and God, through Paul, has to say to us. Let's read our passage for the day, Romans 14, verses 13 to 24. Romans 14, verses 13 to 24. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know a man persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Lord God, we just pray that you would give the increase. Flesh and blood profits nothing unless your spirit implants your word in our hearts. It will be of no benefit, Lord, but we know that that is what you delight to do. We know that that is your pleasure with us. So, Lord, you pray that you would give us hearts to meekly receive the implanted word which is able to save us, that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear so we might understand what you were saying through the Apostle Paul. We might learn how to love and serve and defer to each other, make peace, maturity, guard us against hearts of, of pride, holding on to our rights, but make us servants, humble and meek. Lord God, that is our prayer this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the second... In, in the same discussion, the second part in the same discussion that we started last week. Um, verses 13 to 23 do not represent a new topic as much as a continuation of the topic brought up. And we know that because in our first point, Paul reiterates or summarizes the past 12 verses. In verse 13, he says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. So our first blanks are stop passing judgment on each other. The first 12 verses, we're sort of going to review now, just to sort of catch up from where we were last week, deal with two parties, the weak and the strong, and deal with matters of wisdom and conscience. And it's important to remember this. We're not talking about matters of command. Again, Paul does not say one person has faith to commit adultery and another person does not. One person has faith to lie. One person does not. No, these are matters of conscience. 
The issues Paul brings up, eating meat, not eating meat. Observing certain days, not observing certain days. The drinking of wine, the not drinking of wine. These are matters of individual conscience and wisdom. It's important to understand that. It's also important to understand the strong and the weak. And you remember from last week, this, the weak are not weak in their faith. Rather, they are weak in their understanding of the freedom they have in Christ. The text shows how they honor Christ with their observance of days and with their abstaining from certain meats. They're purposefully living to glorify God. They've given thought to this. They have convictions. They're fully persuaded in their own mind. These are godly, Christ-honoring people who arrive at narrower convictions than some others. And, and the strong, likewise, are not the libertarians. They're not the carnal. They've equally thought it through. They're equally purposeful. Just because you observe a day or don't observe a day doesn't guarantee that you're the weak or the strong. Unless you're doing it thoughtfully, fully convinced, and purposely to God's glory, you're some other category. The weak and the strong are godly people, purposeful people, people of convictions, people who submit their lives to Christ. And so that's what we're talking about here. And in the first 12 verses, the primary command is receive each other, don't bicker and quarrel, don't judge each other, don't despise each other. But the weight of it came down on the side of instruction to the weak. The weak were not to look down their noses, not to judge those who were eating. And this is largely a Jewish context. In verse 14, Paul talks about how he knows that nothing is unclean in and of itself. That's an inherently Jewish category, the clean and the unclean. And so he's telling the, the weaker brother, in this context, likely a converted Jew that he should not judge his neighbor who does eat meats that the Mosaic food law prohibited. But now we're going to get some instruction for the stronger brother. We're going to get instructions for the person who has liberty. And last week we saw all things being equal. The weak was to operate on his conviction and conscience in faith, and the strong was to operate on his conviction and faith, and the two were to coexist peaceably. Both parties living out their convictions. Both parties acting in faith. Both parties receiving each other. Trusting that the Lord will uphold each other. But now we see that there is a condition for the strong. That's not always the marching orders for the strong. There are times, we're going to see, when the strong need to surrender their rights. Surrender their privileges. Curtail their freedom for the sake of the weaker brother. And that's what we're going to look at this week. There's a play on words here. Paul says that we are not to pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather, than the ESV says decide, but literally to judge, rather judge, never to put a stumbling block or hindrance. So there's a wrong type of judging, judging your brother. There's a right type of judging, which is to consider the facts and make a decision. I am not going to put a stumbling block in front of my brother. And so we are to move on to the primary command. Paul says it a number of different ways in this text, but the basic point is this. Never tempt a brother to sin against his conscience. Never tempt a brother to sin against his conscience. Paul says this a number of ways, most obviously in verse 13. Never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. 
Then he says it a little down further in verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes a brother to stumble. Never tempt a brother to sin against his conscience. That's, that's the primary command that we're to unpack here, what this means to the strong. So let's first take a look at stumbling blocks and hindrances that can be confusing. Literally, scandalons, things that would scandalize, things that would trouble. What are they? Well, I think if we look at the context, it becomes clear that these stumbling blocks or hindrances are temptations for the weaker brother to sin against his conscience. It's not simply a matter of offending him. It's not simply a matter of doing something he doesn't agree with, but rather doing something that would tempt him to do something himself that he does not disagree with. Um, one of the commentators writes this, the pain that the strong believer causes the weak believer is more than the annoyance or irritation that the weak believer might feel towards those who act in ways they do not approve. Its relationship to the warnings about spiritual downfall in verse 13 and 15 show that it must denote the pain caused by the weak believer when he violates his or her own conscience. The eating of the strong coupled with their attitude of superiority and scorn towards those who think differently can pressure the weak into eating even when they do not yet have the faith to believe that it is right for them to do so. And by doing what does not come out of faith, the weak sin and suffer the pain of that knowledge. So that's what we're talking about here. The, the stumbling block is not simply, I don't agree with that. The stumbling block is, I'm tempted to do that. If I can make this point clear, because I think oftentimes Christians confuse the two, let me make a rather ridiculous example. Suppose my mom buys me for my birthday a purple belt buckle. And I wear it proudly and I show up here and Zeb Carpenter walks up to me and he says, you can't wear purple belt buckles, that's sinful. I said, really? I'm not aware of that passage. And so we open our Bibles, and Zeb tries to convince me that wearing purple belt buckles is a sin, and, and he fails because, of course, there is no such teaching. But he still thinks the text points that way, hints that way. And so we agree to, to have our own convictions on the matter. Now, would wearing that purple belt buckle be a stumbling block for Zeb? And in this text, the answer is no. If all that you mean by stumbling block is it would tempt Zeb to judge me. It would tempt Zeb to look down on me. If that's all we're talking about, then the first 12 verses of chapter 14 reign, and Zeb's to have his conviction, and I'm to have my conviction, and we're both to live in our freedom, and our liberty, and our convictions in faith to the Lord. What it would be a stumbling block is if Zeb saw my awesome purple belt buckle, and day after day he thought to himself, man, I want to wear a purple belt buckle, but it's sinful to wear, oh, mm, but look at Jeremy and all the attention he gets with his purple belt buckle. And, 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 and then just one day he breaks down and next thing you see, Zeb's wearing a purple belt buckle and he's looking kind of sheepish, but you know, kind of. Then that's what we're talking about here. That's what we're, and it's important to make this distinction. Paul does not tell the strong to curtail their liberty simply because someone else has a different opinion. The stumbling blocks here are about causing people to do things that they think are wrong, causing people to be tempted to disobey their conscience. That's a huge distinction. So these stumbling blocks, these hindrances, are temptations to sin. T turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 8, there's a great parallel passage that I think makes this even further um, abundantly clear. 
1 Corinthians 8. Here the context is a little different. Rather than a Jewish background, Paul is dealing with a pagan background at Corinth and people who previously in their worship of pagan gods had sacrificed food to idols and their consciences were bothered by that now. And in verses 7 to 13, Paul writes this. However, not all possess this knowledge, which refers back to the knowledge that an idol is nothing and meat sacrificed to an idol is nothing. It's just meat. But not all possess this knowledge. Some, through former association with idols, eat as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become, there's our word, a stumbling block to the weak. Then he tells us what he means. For if anyone sees you, who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes your brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble." You see how clear that is. What we're talking about is a scenario where if I exercise my liberty that I've thought through biblically, the convictions that I have, that, that I can do in faith the glory of God, if in so doing I am going to tempt my brother to sin against his conscience in following suit, then I am to not exercise my liberty. That, that's what we're talking about here. That's what a stumbling block is. That's what a scandal on is here. It's a very specific scenario. You could easily think of a scenario where someone who's had a struggle in their life with alcohol, you would not want, if your conscience permitted you to drink a glass of wine, you would not want to do it in front of a brother or sister who struggles that way. It would be putting a stumbling block in front of them. That's what we're talking about here. Avoid stumbling blocks and hindrances. And this brings out the principle that what a person thinks might be sin for them is what a person thinks might be sin for them is. And this is important to get because you might think some things are sin that aren't. But for you, if you do them, it is sin. I'll say that again. You might think that some things are sinful, and they're not. They're perfectly legal and free. But if you think they might be, and you do it anyway, it's sin. It's sin. And that's the point Paul brings out here. Because twice he says, look guys, I know that, that there's no unclean foods. I know that our Lord said in, in Mark seven nineteen that it's what comes out of a person that defiles and not what goes in. I know that Mark's gospel says in so saying this, Jesus declared all foods to be clean. I know that in Acts chapter 10, God sends a vision to Peter telling him to rise and kill and eat animals that under the Mosaic law are unclean. I know that. I know that. But not everyone knows that. Not everyone's conscience is informed with that. And so, if you eat a ham sandwich thinking you shouldn't, you're sinning. If you eat a ham sandwich not sure if you should, you're sinning. We're going to see eventually that just doubting and, and it works something like this. God wants our allegiance to him to be so strong, so committed, that when we think, I'm not sure if eating this ham sandwich would please God. Maybe it would, 
Maybe it wouldn't. Well, I'll just eat it anyway. Well, then what we're doing is we're playing fast and loose with what may or may not please God. We're more concerned with what we want than pleasing God. What we rather should do is, if there's any chance on earth that this would displease God, I'm not doing it. Why? Because I just want to please him, and I don't want to take any chances with pleasing him. See, that's the hard attitude that God is looking for. And it's important in this text because we can look at it like, what's so big about eating and drinking and observing a day? What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is whether we're submitting our lives to Christ's lordship or our own. Whether we're living to please Christ or our own appetites. And so the principle in the heart, which undergirds this, is hugely important. I mean, understand, Paul spends an entire chapter in Romans working through what might look on the surface like kind of inconsequential issues. Okay, so one guy eats a ham sandwich, one guy doesn't. One guy's observing the Sabbath, one guy isn't. What's the big deal, Paul? Spend a couple verses on it, move on. And he camps out with an entire chapter on this topic. Because this is where Christians can create strife and conflict, where people can sin against their conscience, people can harden their conscience, and he stops and slows down and says, whoa, whoa. It's important, you need to act in faith, you need to be fully convinced in your own mind, and you need to make sure that you're not tempting a brother or sister to sin against their conscience. So, what are the stakes then? What will happen if we fail to obey this command? Well, three things will happen. The first, we see in verse 15, is that we will grieve our brother. He says, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. In 1 Corinthians 8, he says that we will defile his conscience. We will hurt his conscience, and we will defile his conscience. And that defiling can go further and further and further to the point where in 1 Timothy 4, Paul talks about people who have seared consciences. And searing is that deadening of the nerves so that it doesn't feel anymore. And some people have hardened their heart and ignored their conscience for so long that their conscience doesn't make any noise at all. It's seared. And the way you sear a conscience is by repeatedly, over and over, ignoring it. So the first thing that'll happen, you will grieve your brother and you will defile his conscience. Secondly, you may cause them to think ill of the gospel itself. Look at verse 16. So do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. And and the context is this. These Jewish Christians have come out of Judaism. They've heard the announcement of the gospel. They've heard that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has come and that in his coming, those who are in him, those who are trusting him, have died to the Mosaic law. They're no longer under it. And there's a freedom in the new covenant. And they enter into this. And what they see instead of this freedom and this peace and this love and this joy is squabbling and and people not serving each other with their liberty, but but rubbing their liberty in and and looking down on people and, and coaxing other people to sin against their liberty. And they think, I don't want any part of that. If that's what the new covenant's about, if that's what the gospel's about, I don't want any part of that. He says, be careful that no one speak evil of this good thing of yours. You've got this good freedom. You're free from the Mosaic food laws. Everyone here who enjoys bacon should say amen. (laughs) And we are freed from those. It's a good thing. And we have so many other liberties and freedoms in Christ that are good and wonderful things. And we should not let others 
watching how we live out our freedom, speak evil of the covenant that gives us that freedom. And thirdly, and probably most frighteningly, you may destroy his faith. You may destroy his faith. Look at verse 15. Paul says this twice, verse 15 and verse 20. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And then down in verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. This word destroy is the same word that Paul uses back in chapter 2, verse 12. Speaking of perishing before God's throne. And the basic point is this, that if, if we encourage someone to ignore their conscience and they make a pattern of that and they sear their conscience, they keep ignoring their conscience, they keep ignoring their conscience and they never repent. Well, such a person is not a person of faith. Hebrews says if we go on sinning deliberately and willfully, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And we may play a part in, in collapsing someone's faith by teaching them to harden their hearts, sin against their conscience, and ignore their convictions. That's a pretty frightening stake. You can see maybe now why Paul spends an entire chapter on this topic. Do not destroy the work of God. Do not, by what you eat, destroy the one for whom Christ died. The stakes are very high. Stakes are very high. And this notion of conscience is so important that Paul in 1 Timothy 1, verse 5 and 18 to 19 says this. He sums up the entire point of the letter of 1 Timothy. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And then in verses 18 and 19, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. By rejecting faith and a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So the stakes are high. The stakes are high. If we're training people to ignore their consciences, if we're training people and encouraging people to sin against their convictions, we are, we are doing tremendous, immense evil. Stakes are high. So thirdly, we see then that rather than using our liberty to coax and, and egg people on, we need to be willing to love others by surrendering our rights to love others by surrendering our rights. And Paul gives us a number of reasons for that. The first is seen in verse 15. Negatively, he says that if we're not doing this, he says, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. You need to walk in love. You walk in love not by holding on to your rights, not by, this is my freedom. I'm free to do this. It's my right. There's nothing wrong with this. If that's our attitude, we're not walking in love. We need to be willing to love our brother. Turning your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. To Philippians chapter 2. This 
It's a wonderful exhortation in the first four verses we'll look at, and then in a minute we'll look at the next four verses. Paul says this. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the same attitude Paul's talking about here. Do nothing simply because it pleases you. Consider others. Have others in view. Have others in mind. And if you, if you believe something will likely be a stumbling block, tempt your brother to sin, don't do it. Don't do it. I know you may have the right to do it. I know you may have the freedom to do it. Don't do it. Consider them and, and their interests more important than your own. Point B, this is how Christ loved us. Verse 15, we see that if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer in walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. This is how Christ loved us. You understand that Jesus did not hold on to his rights. He had the right to praise and honor and joy and adoration and glory. He set those aside for a time. If you read a little further in, in Philippians, Paul, following the same logic, gives us this example. He says, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hold on to it. He didn't say, no, that's mine. It's my right, and I'm not giving it up. But he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And if we're tempted to think, these are my rights, why should I have to surrender my rights for somebody else? Well, A, we don't have the mind of Christ, and, and B, we then apparently think we have more rights and privileges than Jesus. Jesus could surrender his rights, but I can't. That might be something he can do, but not me. No. He laid down his life. He served to the point of death. He humbled himself to the point of crucifixion. He set aside his privileges and his rights, and he became a servant, and we must too. We must too. In point C, Paul goes on to say, this is what the kingdom of God is really about. This mention of the kingdom of God is interesting. It's the only time it appears in the book of Romans. It's a huge theme for Jesus, but not as huge of a one for Paul. And it's interesting that he brings it up here. Perhaps some of the Christians were thinking that, you know, as we've passed beyond the Mosaic law, as we are freed from its dietary restrictions, we're now living the kingdom life. And there's some truth to that. The kingdom is here in principle, in seed form, like a mustard seed. Its fullness is not here. But we have the down payment, the deposit in the Holy Spirit and the miracles that he worked. And in this freedom from the law, and so perhaps some of the Romans are, are making a point of their kingdom liberty. And Paul says, look, the kingdom is not about eating this or drinking that. 
The kingdom is about, what's he say here? The kingdom of God. It's not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God's about. It's about people pursuing righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so the irony here is that people claiming to be living in in kingdom, liberty, and freedom are actually undermining the very principles and foundation of the kingdom. Douglas Moo says this about that attitude. There's the strong who are rubbing their liberty in the faces of others. Theirs, paradoxically, is the same fault as that of the Pharisees, only in reverse. The Pharisees insisted on strict adherence to the ritual law at the expense of justice, mercy, and faith. The strong are insisting on exercising their freedom from the ritual law at the expense of righteousness, peace, and joy. Both groups are missing the main point. The Pharisees are so nitpicky over the law and tithing the, the dill and the mint and the cumin, and they miss peace and righteousness. And here are these strong that, peop- that Paul is rebuking who are so emphasizing their freedom and their liberty that they too miss the point of why we've been given freedom. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking or celebrating a day. Paul says. The kingdom of God is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, we see that in so doing this, as we live this way, we will make peace and help the body to grow. We'll make peace and help the body to grow. Look at verse 17 and 18. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So if we're going to live this way, if we're going to become servants to each other, if we're going to serve each other with our liberty, if we're going to look out for each other's interests, we're going to have the approval of men, we're going to have the approval of God, We're going to make peace, and the body is going to mature and grow. Now, who doesn't want that? The cost is going to be surrendering our rights. That doesn't come naturally. That does not come naturally. That takes purposefulness. It goes back to verse 13. We've got to judge. We've got to commit. We've got to look this square in the face and say, I will serve my brother. I will let go of my rights. I will not fight for what is mine I'll make peace. Use my liberty to serve. This brings us finally to the last two verses where we see that we must always act in faith with a clean conscience. We must always act in faith and with a clean conscience. This point is so significant and so important for the Christian life that In talking this text over with Pastor Gary, we decided that next week, rather than starting chapter 15, verse 1, we're going to do a standalone message incorporating this verse and understanding how Christians should make decisions, decision-making in the will of God. It'll kind of be a pause in our study of Romans. It'll it'll camp out on this text and one or two others. Because that question of how to make decisions, of what college to go to, and who to marry, and what job to take, and so many others, is something that so many Christians wrestle with. And this text is so hugely important for that. And we won't be able to really even scratch the surface with it here, 
But looking at it as it fits in the context, Paul is giving the argument or the reason again of why this is so important. And understand that the Bible reasons, the Bible makes arguments. I've heard one pastor compare it. It's not a string of pearls. You move from one good verse that you like, skip over a couple that are, you know, they're okay. And here's another one I like. It's a, especially with Paul, it is a reasoned argument. He's given command. Don't put stumbling blocks in front of your brother. Don't let your liberty be spoken of as evil. Don't destroy your brother. And then he fills it in with reasons why. This is why. And so it's understanding how the conscience works. Understanding how the conscience works. He says, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. And our first point here is, don't try to force your convictions on others. Don't try to force your convictions on others. We can have convictions on so many different things. This principle covers so many topics. I mean, for, for most of us, the issue of eating meat or not eating meat probably isn't that big of a deal. Perhaps the issue of drinking wine or not drinking wine that he mentions is. Perhaps observing a day, not observing a day is. But others would include things like, and I just made a brief list this morning looking over this. How much content is it okay to allow in a movie that you're going to watch? How much content? And I'm sure people in this room have thought through that and come to God-honoring convictions in faith, fully convinced in their own minds. How, how should you dress for, for corporate worship on Sunday morning? I'm sure, again, people have come up with differing convictions over this. What, what about whether or not you should work on Sunday or not? Again, differing convictions. And, and, and Paul says, whatever conviction you land on, don't try to convert everyone else to it. Don't go out proselytizing your conviction. And again, he doesn't forbid discussing these things. And back all the way in verse 1 of chapter 14, he simply forbids disputing over these things. So if you're curious about someone and their liberty and why they do what they do, it's not a problem to say, hey, you know, um, I was wondering um, what your thoughts were about movie content. I've been trying to think through that lately. That would be a fantastic discussion to have. It'd be God-honoring. That'd be great. The second it becomes a disagreement and dispute, you need to stop. And sometimes we can sort of get proud and think that we've got the right of it. Remember last week we talked about how easy it is for us to believe that we've landed perfectly. And everyone who's slightly more conservative than us, well, they're legalists. And everyone who's slightly freer in their conscience, well, they're licentious and carnal. And we just happen to have perfectly landed, each and every one of us. I mean, isn't that amazing? Each and every one of us just... And instead... We need to not go and try to force our convictions on others. Keep it to yourself. If someone asks, that's a great conversation to have. But keep it to yourself. If it's a matter of conscience and wisdom, don't try to convert the church to your view of what should be worn or what should be watched. Keep it to yourself, Paul says. Happy is the man, blessed is the man whose conscience is clean, who doesn't convict himself. Next, we move on to the fact that, and this is an important, an important point, consciences, consciences, sorry, may be misinformed, but they must always be obeyed. Consciences may be misinformed, but they must always be obeyed. You know, people with differing backgrounds can have all sorts of wrongly programmed consciences. 
I remember when I first became a Christian. I don't know why. I just felt convicted that to pray not on my knees was wrong. I don't know if it was something I was brought up with or some picture I had in my mind of what godly men did. But, but my conscience was wrongly informed. It's fine to pray on your knees, but the scripture says, you know, the godly man meditates in the word and talks to God on his bed at night. Paul says to be praying at all times. My conscience was wrongly informed, but for me to disobey my conscience would be sin. Consciences can be wrongly informed, misinformed, but they must always be obeyed. Paul says that whatever, whoever doubts, in verse 23, is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So if your conscience bothers you about certain things, make a study of it, pray about it, and renew your mind. This is going back to Romans chapter 12, right? The gospel living. Submit your mind to Christ. Be renewed in your mind. Inform your conscience. I informed my conscience. I prayed through it. I studied the word, and now I feel free and confident, and I'm fully persuaded in my own mind that praying while not kneeling is a fine thing. But for me to skip over that informing of my conscience to just doing it would be sin. Anything done not in faith is sin. Doing things that you're doubting over is sin. And this is huge for us because Paul says just the matter of doubting. I'm not sure if this is okay. Is, is, is a sin issue for us. Consciences may be misinformed but they must always be obeyed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 3 to 4, Paul says this. He's, he's dealing with the potential that the Corinthians themselves might be judging him. They might, they might have a problem with him. He says, I'm not aware of anything against myself. My conscience is clean, in other words. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is God who judges me. What Paul's saying is, my conscience is leaving me alone. My conscience is not bothering me. My conscience is clean, but that does not mean that I am innocent. My conscience, after all, may be misinformed. There might be some things that I'm doing in my life that I don't realize are wrong. So my conscience leaves me alone. There might be other things that I'm doing which are, which are wrong that my conscience is, is, is giving me a pass on while others, my conscience is flagging me down when, in fact, it's fine. And so Paul says, look, I can tell you I have a clean conscience. But that doesn't mean I'm gonna pass muster with God. That may not mean that my conscience is in tuned perfectly with who Christ is and what God would have of me. Consciences must be obeyed, but they can be misinformed. I'll give you an example of this, a practical, simple example. When Serena and I were engaged and living in California, we were going to a harvest party, um, and we stopped by a chain of supermarkets called Ralph's, and the employees of Ralph's were on strike for some reason. I'm not exactly sure what their grievance was, but they were out front of Ralph's with picket signs and picketing, and, and I, was, I was getting up to go in. My wife, my fiance at the time, put her hand on my shoulder and said, should we go in? What if they've got a legitimate complaint? And in God's kindness and mercy, this passage came to mind. And I realized that for me to just say, oh, Serena, don't be silly. Let's just go. Don't worry about it. I would be guilty of this very thing. It's a silly little example, but it absolutely happened. 
And it's just the grace of God that Romans 14 popped into my head and I thought to myself, no. It's clear to me my wife is troubled. She's not sure. She doubts. She's not sure if this is okay. She's sympathizing with the workers. Maybe they've been mistreated. Maybe we should hear them out. Maybe we should support them. I don't know. And so instead, we spent about five or six minutes in the car talking and praying and working through it until she said, I, I think you're right. Let's go. Let's go in. My conscience is fine. Um, and I'm just thankful to God for that grace. I didn't realize at the time, I hadn't really studied this as much as I had this last week, just how important those types of things are. But we want to keep a sharp, sharp conscience. It would have been so easy just to say, oh, we got to get there. we got to move. Come on. Don't be silly. Let's go. We need to take our own conscience and the conscience of others seriously. We need to take it seriously because if we don't, it will dull and deaden over time until it doesn't speak with any voice at all. And then lastly, we see that anything done with doubting and not in faith is sin. Anything, anything done doubting and, and not in faith is sin. And here's the point. The only way we can avoid sin then is by actively and consciously, purposefully doing all things to the glory of God, which is exactly what Scripture repeatedly calls us to do. Remember last week we saw that the answer to this is not to say, you know what, I just won't think through any of this stuff, then my conscience will leave me alone. I just won't think, what's the point of having a conviction over food or wine or days if it creates strife? I'm just not going to worry about it. No, last week we saw that Paul said we're all to be fully convinced in our own minds, and this week we need to act in faith. And you can't act in faith apart from God's word. You can't act in faith unless you know what God says about it. Acting in faith does not mean I've got a good feeling. Acting in faith rather means I am confident that what I'm about to do pleases God. I'm confident that what I'm about to do is lawful and good, and I'm doing it for the glory of God. That means we need to be thinking through every part of our day more and more, and in so doing, we will be giving God more and more glory, because we'll be submitting every area of our life to him. We'll be glorifying God in our breakfast. Remember, whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God. You're brushing your teeth, driving to work. We're acting more and more in faith, purposefully, as servants and slaves of the living God. That, that's the goal that Paul wants to have us here, and we should be encouraging each other to do this, not tearing each other down. We've got tremendous freedom and liberty in Christ, and where we're not tempting others to sin against that liberty, that conviction, we are to coexist in faith, living out our varied convictions, but where we sense that we might be actually tempting a brother to sin against their conscience. We need to, to, to drop and surrender our rights. And wherever we find ourselves doubting, wherever we find ourselves not sure, we need to stop and figure it out. And this is important. If you're doubting about something, you've got to stop. You've got to put it in check. You've got, until you work through it, you've got to, I can't do this. I can't watch this movie until I work through this. I can't go to that party. I can't wear that piece of clothing. I can't, whatever it is, until I think through it. I once had a friend who was working at a convenience store who all of a sudden one day started to get convicted. I'm, I'm selling alcohol to people who may have alcohol problems. And there's, you know, sketchy magazines on the rack behind me. I don't know if I can sell this stuff. 
well, I, I, I wasn't there to tell him the right answer, but basically I said, look, Romans 14, you can't do that while you're doubting, so you need to work through it or quit. Because if you go to work tomorrow, not having resolved this, you're going to be sinning. You're going to be sinning. And my, and my purpose wasn't to say which the right answer to that issue was, but to show here's an example where you cannot doubt and act in faith at the same time. And anything not done in faith is sin. Anything not done in faith is sin. We're going to transition now to communion. And I'd like to take this moment as we call the ushers forward to talk about a warning the Apostle Paul gives about our communion and the importance of having a clean conscience. In 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 23, Paul writes this. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself when he eats and drinks the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I'd like to take a moment for us to get our consciences clean before the Lord. I'd like to take a moment to pray and just have a silent prayer for anyone here who needs to get right with God, anyone here who's been ignoring their conscience to, to turn to God and, and let us Enjoy this table together with clean consciences in full fellowship. Let's just take a moment and pray. Lord God, as we turn to your table, your meal that commemorates your death, the inauguration of the new covenant, and our unity together. Lord, show us where we have done amiss. Show us where we have failed you. Show us where we have ignored our conscience. Help us to confess that to you. Help us to commit to turn from that. Lord, give us clean consciences and sound faith as we turn to your table so that we will not be judged. Amen. Speaking again in this passage, Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. We too are now going to take bread. <laughs> 